Um, but he used stories so much because he understood the power of stories. Stories do something that other kinds of teaching don't do. Because stories, they often connect at an emotional level. They make us feel often before they make us believe things or think things. And stories also allow us to work things out for ourselves. So it's not someone saying, oh, I think this. They tell you a story and you have to work it out. And that allows you to wrestle with different perspectives, different viewpoints, different ways people might see the world. And I think, I think stories are fascinating because they often deal with really big ideas, but they allow for some level of ambiguity in there. And the other things that stories can be really powerful for doing is they can often make really complex ideas seem quite simple. So you have a really complex idea and you tell a story and suddenly it seems simple to you. But because of that, they can, they can do subtle things. So they can make controversial ideas seem obvious. They can even make unbelievable things seem believable. Stories can shape the way that we think, the things that we value, the things that we believe, and the way that we behave. And every culture in human history has understood the power of stories. That's why every culture has had the stories that they would tell. So if you look back hundreds of years, even thousands of years, every culture would have had the stories that people were brought up knowing. Maybe they were fables or fairy tales or myths. Even in our culture, if you talk about certain stories, there's a general acceptance that people understand what that story is. And the reason they did that was because telling those stories was part of the way the society developed. As they told the stories, people began to believe certain things, to value certain things. And because of that, they, became, they began to behave in certain ways. So you tell stories... People believe certain things, they think certain things, and then they act in a certain way. That's how societies are built. And that's also how people are integrated into society. So if you're born and you're thinking, how do I bring this person into the society we have? One of the, things, the ways we do that is we tell them stories all the time while they're growing up. And those stories teach them to value certain things. They teach them some ideas of right and wrong. Also, they can become a part of the society that they've been brought into. And of course, the same is true today. The same is true of our culture. Our cult culture is no different in that. Only, only largely speaking, the, what, the, the place of fables and fairy tales and myths has been taken by Disney and Netflix and Amazon and YouTube. Like that, that's, that's where we consume our stories now, primarily. There are other stories. I'm aware some people read books um, and some people listen to things. But primarily, the way that we hear our stories now is through, is through those areas. And, and the reason those stories are told is exactly the same reason the stories have always been told. They're to help build the kind of society that we live in. They're to help shape the world that we live in, the people that we are, the things that we value. And so as we watch stories, that impacts the things that you value. It impacts the things that you believe. It impacts the things that you think are possible and desirable. Of course, now the stories are bigger and more immersive than ever. They take us on journeys. 
They make some things seem incredibly important and they make other things seem utterly ridiculous. That's part of the power of stories. That's what they're trying to do. And so the stories that all of us are consuming, I don't know, look back at your week, think about the stories you've been exposed to. What have you watched? What have you listened to? What have you read? Each one of those stories, each one of those episodes, each one of those books has done a little bit of work shaping you. It's made you think certain things. It's challenged the things that you value or the things that you think are important. And often it happens without us noticing. We, we kind of consume a whole load of stories and we start valuing certain things and we don't really see the connection. You see, the impact of Friends or Game of Thrones or Inventing Anna or Batman in shaping what we believe is much more significant than we're likely to realize. But we just we don't want to be like super naive as we kind of dive into those stories because those stories come with an agenda. They're not neutral. They come with a view of the world, a way of understanding how they want the world to function, the things that they want people to believe. The stories want to tell you something. They often want to sell you something. Like that's what they're trying to do. They want to make you think or value or believe certain things. And the same is true of Jesus' stories. Jesus' stories are not neutral. They're not just like, oh, here's a nice story. Go and do what you want with it. They come with an agenda. Jesus is trying to do something with the stories he's telling. He's trying to shape the way that you see the world. When Jesus tells stories, he's trying to make you believe certain things and not believe other things. He's trying to make you value certain things and not value other things. And you see, that's why... As a church, we wanted to do a series looking at the stories of Jesus because you're surrounded with other stories. You're consuming hundreds of stories all the time and they're influencing the way you think. And so we want to not only have those stories going on, we also want to hear the stories that Jesus is telling because they're going to give you a different way of viewing the world. They're going to communicate something different about what's important and what isn't important in the world. And so if you're going to be shaped by stories, which you are because we all are, if you're going to be shaped by stories, some of the stories that you need to be listening to are the stories that Jesus told. Because those stories are actually for your good. When Jesus tells those stories, he's not trying to primarily sell you a product or integrate you into the society you live in. Jesus is telling you these stories for your good. And so we're going to, we're going to this week, we're going to look at a really short story. It's like, I don't know. I should have done a word count. I bet it's not more than like 30 words. I'm going to do it later. It's going to be like 100 or something because I'm not very good at that. But it's not very many words. Anyway, you get the point. It's a few lines. Let, let me read it to you. It's, um, you'll find it verse 28 on page 989 or Matthew 21. Verse 28. This is the story Jesus tells. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said... Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. 
And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. That's the story. The point is obvious, I think. I reckon most of you have probably got there. Which, which of the sons did what the father wanted? Well, the one who actually did the thing. It's a short story. It's obvious. And the question Jesus asks them at the start is like, it's quite an interesting way to start. I think he, just, he starts it with like, what do you think? So, so he's asking you, what do you think of this story? Uh, what, what do you make of it? And I think the point is so obvious, but the challenge is like very real and something that we need to think about. Uh, and first, we've got to recognize who Jesus is talking to, talking to here, because he spells it out for his listeners what the challenge is. He compares the two sons to two different groups of people. Okay, On the one hand, you have the religious leaders. They're the people that Jesus is talking to at the moment because he's in the temple being confronted by the religious leaders. So on the one hand, he's got these religious leaders in front of him, the very respectable people in the temple. And he says there's another group of people involved in this story. So on the one hand, you've got the religious leaders. On the other hand, you've got this other group, which he labels as tax collectors and prostitutes. So if they're the two groups that Jesus is talking about here, which group is which son? Well, the tax collectors and prostitutes are represented by the first son. Why? Well, because they've never claimed that they're following God. In fact, their whole lives have been communicating that they're not going to obey God. They're going to go their own way. They're not going to listen to what God says, and they're going to live life as they see right. They've quite clearly, in their lives, said no to God. They're that first son. God's come to them and said, this is what I want. They've said, no, don't want it. Not going to do what you say. I'm going to go and do my own thing. That's what they've done. Tax collectors and prostitutes. When asked if they will obey God, they have clearly said, I will not. And yet, and yet now, in the person of Jesus, God has actually come to them. And he has said to them, come and know me. And despite the fact they've spent their whole life saying, no, I don't want to know you. And I'm going to do my own thing. When they're actually in that position, they do come to know him. They come to accept what Jesus has said. They come to follow him. Despite all of their lives saying they're not going to follow God, when it actually came to it, they did. Many of them turned to Jesus, found the forgiveness, the new life which he offers. They repent, they believe in Jesus, they come to know God. They're the first son. Spend all their time saying no to God, but when it actually comes to it, they do listen to God and they do follow him and they do do what he says. First son. So that means that the religious leaders, these upstanding, respectable guys, the kind of heads of, of society in those days, who are they? Well, they're the second son. Why are they the second son? Because all their lives, they have claimed to follow God. All their lives, they have spoken respectfully to God. They have said, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, to God. They've asked God to rescue them. They've even said that they're waiting for the Messiah. And yet, when the Messiah comes, they don't want him. They say they want him. Spend their whole life saying they want him. Saying they want to follow God. Saying they're going to be one of his people. But when Jesus comes in front of them, what do they do? They reject him. You see, they're the son who says, yes, sir, to God. 
I'll obey you. I'll follow you. I want you to come into my life and work with me. But when it came to it, when God was actually there in front of them saying, this is what it looks like, they said, no, I don't want it. I'm not going to do that. Now they have a chance to work alongside what is God doing. They choose to hinder rather than help. They might say yes, but when it came to actually getting on board with what God was doing, their lives said no. That's the story. One son says no. When it comes to it, does what the father asks. Another son says yes. When it comes to it, doesn't. And the story makes it completely obvious which story, which son it's better to be. Just so obvious. It's so obvious that even the religious leaders who know that he's speaking this against them have to admit, well, it's obviously better to be the first son. They have to admit it. They kind of put on the spot, Jesus, which one does what the father says? And they have to say, well, the first one. And the question you're left with as you hear that story and you think about who's in front of him, primarily religious leaders, is what is Jesus hoping they're going to do with that story? He's told them this story. The point's obvious. It didn't take much telling. He's told them it. What's he hoping they're going to do? How is he hoping they're going to respond? And to make it more personal, how is he hoping that we'll respond? How are we going to respond to this story? What's God hoping this achieves? In 1968, on the 3rd of April, Martin Luther King gave his final ever speech. It's one of the greatest speeches ever made. If, um, if I'm ever feeling down or depressed, I just click it on and listen to it and allow myself to be swept away by how unbelievably brilliant it is. Um, it's, it was given in, um, at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. And the reason it was his last speech was because on the 4th of April, the day after, he was stood on the balcony of his hotel and he was shot and killed. He gives, he gives this incredible speech, probably the most famous bit of the speech. I'm not going to play you today. But the most famous bit of the speech is when he, he, he even talks about his coming death. It's like he has this kind of weird prophetic vision of like what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's incredible. And he picks up the language of Moses at that point. He talks about having gone to the mountaintop and seen the promised land. But at one point in the speech... He, he gives these words. I'm just going to show you a minute of it now, and then none of you are going to listen to me because you're going to think, why aren't you as good as him? Um, but what can I say? I, I'm not. So there you go. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. Maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for the right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water holders turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us 
Now, I don't know how, how you how you found that or how you managed uh, how well you managed to follow it. He was he was giving this um, speech um, at a time where the um, sanitation workers in Memphis had gone on strike, protesting against working conditions and and pay, campaigning for that. Um, and that was that was the speech that he gave. But what I think is really interesting about it is notice the tone of the speech, the way the way he speaks. Martin Luther King, uh, in that speech, is, he's not anti-American. He's not portraying himself as, I'm against you and what you're about. He's not just laying into America, going, look at all the ways you've failed. Instead, he's doing something much more powerful. He's calling on America to be the country they claim to be. That's what he's calling on them. He's saying, be the country that you, you said that you were. He's portraying himself not as an anti-American revolutionary, but rather as a patriot who's calling on America to be better. To, in his words, be true to what they've said on paper. I think we see real similarities in what Jesus is saying here and what we've just seen there. Because Jesus presents both of these groups as sons. It's amazing. They're both sons. They're both loved by the Father. Son number one, son number two, the tax collectors and prostitutes, the religious leaders, they're both sons. The Father loves them, wants their good, cares about them. Uh, but the parable represents a clear criticism just like Martin Luther King's speech did. It represents a warning, just like Martin Luther King's speech did. But it's primarily a call to be better. To be the people they say they are. You see, throughout his ministry, Jesus is very critical of hypocrisy. You know, that, that thing where we claim to be one thing, but we live a different way. He's so critical of it. He really doesn't like it when we say one thing and we do another. And he doesn't like it because it's pretense and it's deceitful and it destroys relationship and it damages our authenticity and who we actually are and how we view ourselves. Ultimately, it means that good things that people claim are happening actually don't get done. But the solution to hypocrisy is not to stop saying that stuff. It's not to stop saying you're going to do good things. It's to live up to them. That's the solution. The solution is to start doing what you say you're going to. The solution is to live up to your words. Now, I just want to take, I don't know, a few minutes, maybe if more than a few minutes, we'll see where we end up. Just thinking about where this might challenge us. Where Jesus' words might be words that we need to hear. Because I think it is a challenge for us. These are words we need to hear and we need to take seriously. If you would call yourself a Christian here this afternoon, then I want you to cast your mind back to the moment that you became a Christian. Okay? Cast your mind back. For some of you, it might be a few weeks. For some of you, it might be years. For some of you, it might be decades. Cast your mind back. 
what happened when you became a Christian? What actually took place at that point? Well, at that point, you recognized two things. First, you recognized that you deeply needed God. That always happens at conversion. At some point, when you become a Christian, you recognize that you need God. That you were created to know and enjoy and glorify him. And you just feel your need for God. So that happened. And then the second thing that happened simultaneously was you recognized that despite the fact you needed God, all of your life you had rejected him and you had no right to expect him to want you or accept you. See, so at conversion, you end up in this terrible position where for the first time you see that you need God, but also you at the very same time realize you have no right to him, no right to know him. So what do you do when faced with that? Well, you cry out to him. You ask him to forgive you. You ask him to, not because of who you are, not because of what you've done, to, in his mercy, to accept you, to welcome you. You ask him to forgive you. You receive that forgiveness. You come to follow him. You say, I'm no longer going to live life my way. I'm going to live life your way, God. You say, I'm going to stop running away from you, God. I'm going to start running towards you. I'm going to pursue you. You recognize that life is only found in knowing God and that in rejecting God, you are ultimately choosing death. That's what happened when you became a Christian, whenever that was. Week ago, two weeks ago, 20 years ago. That's what you decided to do. That's what you said you were going to do. So now, here, a few weeks on, a few months on, a few years on, a few decades on, what do you need to do? You need to live up to what you said. Live up to what you said you were going to do. You said you were going to accept and rely on the forgiveness which Christ offered you. So do that. Do that. That's what you said you were going to do. Don't start relying on your own efforts. Don't start thinking that you're better than others and looking down on them. No, keep recognizing what you recognized there at the start, what you said you were going to recognize, that you had no right to it, but you were going to accept God's great gift of forgiveness. Live up to what you said. You said when you became a Christian, you were going to stop running away from God and you were going to start running towards him. So do that. That's what you said you were going to do. So live up to it. Keep pursuing him. Open your Bible. Try to get to know him. Speak to him in prayer. Meet with his people. That's what you said you were going to do. You said, I'm going to stop running away from you. I'm going to start pursuing you. So live up to what you said. Be the person you said you were going to be. You said when you became a Christian, you were going to follow him. So follow him. Don't find excuses to disobey him or ignore what he said. Instead, look to be the person that he calls you to be. If you're the son who said yes, then now go and do it. Live up to what you said. Don't be the son who says yes, but doesn't do it. Let, let, me, let me give you another example. As a church, periodically, sporadically would be a better description than periodically, we, we take communion together. So we, we go and we take bread and we take grape juice and we, we remember that Jesus died for us. And as we eat that bread and as we drink that wine, we're, we're making some declarations about who we are and what we, blame, what we believe. So as we do that, we are declaring that we trust Jesus and rely on him. 
That's what we're doing. And we're declaring that to each other. That's one of the great, most powerful things about communion is that as we all do it, I get to see that you're declaring, I am relying on Jesus and still following him. I get to be encouraged by seeing that that's something that you're still doing. But if you've declared that, then when you leave here, you've got to go out and live it. You've said you're relying on Jesus. You've said you follow him. You've said you're one of his people. So now be true to what you said. Don't be the son who says one thing and does another. No, as you go home or into your work, you need to live out what you've said. What about songs? Songs always hit home, don't they? Because you, you say some pretty extreme things in songs. And then you're like, wait a minute, can I actually do that thing that I just said? In a minute. I'm going, to, I'm going to take a less extreme example. In a minute, we're going to sing um, When I Survey, one of the greatest songs uh, ever made. Uh, and in it, we're going to sing these words. We're going to say, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. That's what we're going to say. I mean, if you sing it, you can choose not to sing it. That's fine. But if you sing it, there are words you're going to say. The question is, are you then going to live up to that? Or are you going to go out of here and during the week find 101 different things to boast about? You know, to big yourself up, explain how great you are, you know, dropping in how much you earn, how generous you've been, how kind you are, what a great parent you are. You know, just finding ways to bring that into conversation. We're going to say it here. We're going to say, forbid it, Lord, I'd boast in anything other than you. And then we're going to go out and find a million different things to boast about. We sing the words, but do we live the life? And what about in our conversations? I think this is a massive one for us to think about at Grace Church, because we do quite a lot of chatting in Grace Church. We quite like it. I mean, life groups are basically just an opportunity for us to chat for like hours. Like that's what we do in them. We, we love to chat about things, and we love to chat about God, and we love to chat about what he calls us to. We do it in life groups. We do it in, in conversations around. Here, here's the question. In our conversations, do we talk about how important Jesus is to us, but then in our lives actually put all our energy into pursuing something else? You know, when we're in life groups, when we're sat on there, we talk about, oh yeah, Jesus is so great, and I love Jesus, and I love following him, and isn't it amazing to know him? But then when we come out of that, do we actually spend all our time being more committed to money or comfort or success than we are to Jesus? Do we talk the talk, but when it comes to Thursday or Friday or Monday, actually not walk the walk? The call of this story is clear. Live up to what you say. It doesn't do you any good to say you're going to do something if you then don't do it. The son who says he's going to do the work in the vineyard and then doesn't do it, he's not done anything useful. In fact, he's done the opposite of anything useful. Be the person you say you're going to be. Do the things you say you're going to do. Now, this is a real warning for those of us who are here today. Because the Bible is full of warnings about religious people who go to religious ceremonies, who say certain things, who commit to certain things, and then go out and live completely different lives. You'll see it all the way through the Old Testament. You'll see it all the way in Jesus' teaching. You'll see it all the way in the letters. Who are these people? 
Who are these people who say, uh, you know, go out to religious ceremonies and do religious activities and speak religious words and then don't live it out? Where are you going to find those people? You're going to find them in rooms like this. Where are you going to find them? You know, we're the, we're the people who claim this stuff. You're not going to find them out there primarily because most of them don't claim that. They don't say that I'm going to do this stuff. They don't say I'm going to follow God. Where are you going to find people who are going to say they're going to follow God and not do it? You're going to find them in churches. Where are you going to find them? It's a warning specifically for us. Where did Jesus find these people? He found them in the temple. It's a warning to religious people, to people like us who go to religious ceremonies, who say certain things. And the warning is, do you actually live it? Do you actually do the things you say? The good news is, we need some good news. It's been heavy. The good news is that the solution is like pretty simple. Do what you say you're going to do. Start living up to what you say. And what I love is that the fact that the solution for both sons is like pretty much the same. Whether you've rejected God openly or whether you've claimed to live for God but failed to do it, the solution's the same. It's come to God and actually do what he says. If you've been hostile to God your whole life, so if you've spent your whole life saying, I don't want God, not interested in him, if you're still in that place now, you've never wanted to follow him, you've never wanted to do what he said, you wanted to do what you want and wanted nothing to do with God, the good news is all you need to do to change that dynamic is come to him. All the son who said no needed to do to please his father was just actually go, oh, actually, I'm going to do that. And he went and did it. You're that son who's been spent your whole life saying no to God. All you've got to do is go, actually, I am going to come to you. I am going to find the forgiveness you offer. I am going to find the acceptance you offer. I am going to become one of your people. You might have spent your whole life saying no, but if you now come to him, you will ultimately be the son the father is pleased with. Alternatively, if you're the other son, you know, you're the son who's always said the right things. You've become well-practiced at putting on a show, looking respectable and, you know, speaking respectfully. Yes, sir. But in your life, you've actually never lived that out. You know how to put the show on. You know how to look it and say the right words, but you've never actually done it. The amazing thing is the solution for you is exactly the same as the solution for the other son. Just actually do it. Give up with the show and actually live it. Do the things you've said. If you're hostile or a hypocrite, the solution is the same. Come to God. Hear what he calls you to do. And then do it. And that feels like a difficult call because none of us are consistent, are we? None of us consistently live up to the people that we say we are. All of us fail sometimes to live up to the things that we say we believe. All of us fail to be the people we claim to be. What's the difference between someone who fails and needs to look for forgiveness and a hypocrite who claims to know God but doesn't? Well, the answer is surely found in understanding what the life Jesus calls you to is. What does it look like to do what God calls you to do? Well, it's not perfection, is it? Because God doesn't call you to that. God doesn't call you to be perfect. He knows you're not. 
The hypocrite is not the person who fails because the life God calls you to is not perfection. It's the life of ongoing repentance. That's how you know if you're a hypocrite or not. Am I repentant? Do I actually go to God for forgiveness at those moments? The hypocrite is not the one who fails to be the person God calls them to be, but rather the one who claims to know him, but refuses to come to him in repentance. That's what a hypocrite looks like. We claim to know him, but we refuse to come to him in repentance so we can know him. Jesus is clear. Everyone who comes to him will be accepted regardless of their failures. But the person who will ultimately not find the forgiveness and the rest that Jesus offers is the one who says they've come to him, but actually doesn't. So we're going to wrap it up here. And this is all I want to encourage you to do as we close. Come to him. Don't say you're going to come to him. Don't say you've already come to him. Draw near to him. See him. Pursue him. We're going to sing a couple of songs as we finish. And, And I'm hoping these songs are going to help us to do a couple of things. I'm hoping they're going to help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. To see him. But I'm also hoping that in the words of these songs, we'll find ourselves committing not just to be able to say the right words about Jesus, but to be able to actually live the life that he calls us to live.